Hey everyone, welcome back to Becoming a Veteran, Here Arizona's series identifying the cultural issues that make it difficult for Arizona's half-million military veterans to adapt to civilian life once they separate from the service. I'm going to share a personal story. First, you should know, I'm one of 4.7 million American veterans who has what the Department of Veterans Affairs calls a service-connected disability. That is, a disability caused by, or made worse by, military service. In my case, I have foot, knee, and ankle problems, as well as asthma from the trash burn pits in Afghanistan, and hearing loss from being around loud stuff like planes, guns, and ship engines. None of those are as obvious as, say, an amputation, or paralysis, or scars. Technically, I'm a quote-unquote disabled veteran, although I don't really feel like it. Anyway, back to my story. I really like to camp. It's one of my favorite hobbies. And one of the perks the federal government gives to veterans with service-connected disabilities is a free lifetime National Parks Pass. It also gets you half price at federal campgrounds. It has the universal symbol of disability access, the little wheelchair stick figure you see in accessible parking spots, right on the front of the card. This fall, I went camping near Telluride, Colorado. When the campground host, a nice old lady in a golf cart, came around to collect my fee, I presented her with my National Parks Pass. And it happened. Again. She looked me up and down and uttered the words that everybody with disabilities that aren't readily visible hears. You don't look like a disabled veteran. Here's the thing, though. The vast majority of veterans with disabilities don't have any visible indication that they even have a disability. On this episode, we explore the intersection between the veteran community and the disability community, from the Kafkaesque bureaucracy at the VA to navigating a culture that has a distinct idea of what a disabled veteran should look like. A warning, this episode contains content that some might find disturbing. This is Becoming a Veteran, Episode 3, You Don't Look Disabled. You're listening to Hear Arizona. Addressing issues, empowering our community. Hear that obnoxious ringing sound? I found that on a website that simulates tinnitus, ringing in the ears. That's the most common disability that veterans have when they leave the military. Most jobs in the military expose you to loud noises, and a lot of people don't wear earplugs because they're afraid it makes them look weak. Being diagnosed with tinnitus earns a veteran a 10% disability rating from the VA. In 2022, that translates to a $152.64 monthly disability pension. The second most common disability is post-traumatic stress. We tend to think of this as something people develop when they're exposed to the horrors of combat. In reality, it's a lot more broad. It is when, you know, you're around legitimate trauma and there's no way to get to speak about it. Meet Dustin Logan. Hi, I'm Dustin Logan, um, staff sar- former Staff Sergeant of the United States Army from Northern Michigan, 34 years of age. Dustin lives in Scottsdale with his wife and his horses. He joined the Army in 2005, right at the height of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. He wanted to get away from his small-town upbringing in Michigan. Well, I joined to get away and didn't know that how much I needed it until I had it. Dustin said he was a latchkey kid with very little structure growing up. So I grew up in a household with a parent who was an addict. 
Um, one parent worked, parents are divorced. So one worked to support both households. His, my dad's total thing was to provide for our family. He was not married to my mother, paid child support, but his whole deal was to support two households. So you're going to work a lot. And then my mom being an addict, it was very loose. Life was very loose. You know, I'd come home from school. There was no one to tell me to do my homework. So obviously I graduated uh, 64th in my class. You know, most people probably don't think that's too bad, but but my class had 66. (laughs) So when I got to basic training and it was falling, get in line, do this, do that, do that. And I was like, wow, this is very easy because when you're taking care of yourself, especially at such a young age, it's actually quite difficult. You know, a lot of people grow up and they say, man, I wish I could just do whatever I want. Well, I kind of did do whatever I want. And I tell you, it's not as exciting as you'd, you'd hope. Dustin completed a few deployments. On one deployment to Sadr City, Iraq in 2008, his role involved responding to and cleaning up mass casualty incidents like firefights and bombings. Where, you know, there's a lot of injuries and you got to go clean it up. And they say, hey, you know, real men just tough it up. Real men just, they just deal with it. You don't need it. We're not going to send you to talk to nobody. But uh, what you saw is totally normal. So then you embed it in your brain. Okay, that's normal. No big deal. So then, you know, you start seeing other things and it almost becomes funny. Like you find a way to cope with it. And I feel like a lot of it is humor. On another mission, they were installing a barricade on the streets of Sadr City. The project involved lifting heavy, tall, concrete barriers called T-walls into place. This is where it gets kind of graphic. And we spent two weeks laying walls, pulling security, and then cranes would pick them up, drop them down, lock them together. And they set a T-wall on one of the Iraqis' foot. And when he screamed and they picked it up just a little bit, his foot was disintegrated inside of his shoe. And when you talk to people, like the fact that he was Iraqi and wearing a shoe and not a sandal was insane. Because if he was just wearing a sandal, it would have splattered like a bug. And we just laughed. Like most people were like, oh my gosh, what do we do? Like blah, blah, blah. We were laughing as we were calling for a medevac. But that's what it is when you do certain things and you have to find a way to cope. There's only so many areas you can go to. Eventually, the stress of being exposed to all that gore wore Dustin down. Every time I was around somebody, I was jittery. And I was like, what if this person attacked me? What if that person attacked me? What if this person attacked me? And I just, and I was asking over and over to go get help and no one would help me. Well, then I just had a complete nervous breakdown. Just completely lost it. You know, looked at my roommate, was like, I feel like I should kill you right now. If you remember from our first episode, you'll understand the toxic expectation in military culture. Real warriors don't need help. People who do seek help are often maligned, especially if they didn't engage in serious combat. A while later, while on a relatively peaceful tour of duty in Qatar, Dustin got into a physical fight with his roommate. Um, Got into a fist fight with someone and was kicking their face against the ground. Got pulled off of them. Um, and just lost it. And all the next 24 hours are kind of a blur to me. But when they got me to the medic facility, they gave me some kind of a drug, and I essentially just went to sleep. 
and I woke up in Germany in the psych ward. I was locked in a psych ward for two weeks, no idea how I got there. I mean, obviously they told me how I got there, but now I'm in a padded room for two weeks before they sent me back to the States. But they evaluated me for like long-term psychiatric care, which I ended up getting when I got back to the States. So when I was on my first deployment, uh, it was the first time I started having issues with my foot. This is Tony DeFilippo. He worked for the Navy SEALs. He wasn't a SEAL, but he worked in a support role for the SEALs. I got plantar fasciitis in my right foot. Didn't really do anything about it besides limp around. I went to the doc while we were on deployment. They just like kind of gave me some ibuprofen and told me to ice it. That's that tough it out mentality that Logan was talking about. So I limped around for a while and that like threw my back out of whack, um, like developed some sciatica. And yeah, like I said, I eventually, like after, after deployment was started seeing a physical therapist and stuff and that helped, got me to back to the point where I could run and stuff, but it's kind of been a on again, off again thing. Tony was lucky because he worked with the special warfare group. They had their own team of doctors and physical therapists separate from those in the regular Navy. He was getting ready to get out of the Navy, and during his separation physical, his doctor... Like, he wrote out a thing, like, saying, like, that I had, confirming that I had the plantar fasciitis and sciatica um, that he had treated me for, and that it had started at, you know, he had first seen me on this date, and that I, it had started, like I said, uh, on that first deployment, um, and that went into my, you know, medical package that I submitted when I, when I got out. Department of Veterans Affairs, the VA. Often maligned, often misunderstood. The care there is generally as good, if not better, than care in the civilian sector. Multiple studies commissioned by Congress bear that out. It's free to most veterans, and even those who have to pay usually only have to pay reasonable co-pays. And for military-specific health problems, it has a large research presence and can get pretty innovative in developing treatments. A 2020 survey found that 90% of veterans who use the VA for healthcare were satisfied with it. It gets a bad rap for a few reasons. First, it is a big bureaucratic morass of forms and paperwork, just like any federal agency. For a lot of veterans, it can get confusing and frustrating, and many just give up on trying to get their benefits at all. It also serves a large population. So not only does it usually take a while to get an appointment, when you do get an appointment, it can feel like you're just another number waiting in line. Whenever something does go wrong, something that might be a quiet malpractice settlement in the private sector, it usually ends up on the news, making people think that the problems are more prevalent than they actually are. And perhaps most prominently, the VA's reputation took a huge hit in 2014, when a whistleblower report hit the press about how the Phoenix VA was fudging wait times. Hi, I'm Paula Padin. I'm the executive director for Honoring America's Veterans and author of a new book called A Sacred Duty. Paula served in the Navy from 1978 to 1986, then joined up again at the start of Desert Storm. Her job title was journalist, and she worked producing film and video content for the service. My husband had gotten orders to Buffalo, New York, because I met him in the Navy. And, um, and then I went 
I was picked up by Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, for um, a combat camera outfit. And we were, um, at the time, I was, um, you know, I could do everything. That's how the Navy is. They teach you to do everything. So, um, but they needed an editor. So I was, uh, I became one of the primary editors for all of the training films that they had that we were working on. That was when my eyesight was becoming an issue, but um, I didn't connect the two uh, between, you know, being in the Navy and, and having it exacerbated. Her eyesight deteriorated far enough that the Navy said she could no longer re-enlist. Her service-connected disability ended her military career. And at the time, service-connected disabilities weren't, it wasn't a prominent thing. Like, you know, it was, that was set aside for those who had post-traumatic stress disorder, who were prisoners of war, who, um, you know, had a Purple Heart and were injured. So it was more focused on wartime injuries. Even with her obvious disability, she was declared legally blind. She saw firsthand the bureaucratic quagmire of the VA disability claims process. Is it easy to apply for disability compensation and get it? No, <laughs> I, I have never found that to be true. After Tony got out of the Navy, he pursued his disability claim too. So I was expecting to get some level, like some percent, even if, because I'm pretty sure it's like, even if you get given zero percent, that still means like basically like that you're not disabled, but you do have an injury and that that percent can go up, if I understand correctly. Um, but I didn't get even get a zero. I got a non-service related. Really? So nothing at all? They just said, nothing no, you're all. not disabled. This is not our problem. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I did. I appealed it to um, and got the same thing back. Paula's claim was eventually successful. She was awarded a 70% disability rating based on her blindness. As a disabled veteran, she was entitled to certain benefits, including extra points in the federal hiring process, a benefit she took full advantage of. An opening at the Buffalo VA for a public affairs officer. And I looked at the job description and I thought, oh, I could do this because they were looking for somebody to work with the media and write. And so I applied and I was the first full-time uh, public affairs officer at the Buffalo VA. And then after that, I went to, um, we really wanted to get back to Arizona because that's where my family was from. So the Phoenix VA had an opening for a full-time public affairs officer. So I got hired there as their first full-time uh, PAO. After Army Staff Sergeant Dustin Logan got into a fight and was committed to a psychiatric ward, he was sent back to the U.S. for long-term psychiatric care. He interviewed for and was selected for a residential treatment program at Fort Bliss. Um, it was a very, like, forward-thinking program. Again, this is in 2011, where you did art therapy, you did music therapy, you did massage therapy, you did Reiki, you did acupuncture, you did movement therapy, you did, like, Qigong and Tai Chi and other high-intensity therapy sessions, individual, group, all of the above. And you really, for the first time, realize that there's a lot of people who are going through the same thing you are. There was just one catch. He had to agree to end his Army career. So essentially going into this program, one of the deals was that you agreed for med board getting out. 
So I was medically discharged for post-traumatic stress as a record. And this is where, again, it's a double-edged sword. If we're going to give you care, you're out. Not, hey, we're going to invest thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for you to go to this two-month program so we can keep you in. No, we're going to do this, and then we're going to boot you. When Dustin got out of the Army, he sought out treatment for his mental health disorders at the VA. So I went to the VA initially, and they're like, oh, you have TRICARE. Don't use us. Since he was medically discharged, he got the military's health insurance plan, TRICARE, for life. It's often considered to be one of the best insurance plans available. I pay like $24 a month for me, my wife, and up to five additional dependents. Like a lot of veterans, Dustin tries to avoid using the VA. Like when you go to the VA, you get these worn out people. They're overworked. They're underpaid. They're understaffed. Like the reason the VA is as bad as it is is because of understaffed, underwages, and people just don't. They went in there to take care of veterans, and they're just rud through the dirt. Paula Padine can attest to this firsthand. She was the chief of public affairs for the Phoenix VA healthcare system for several years. She says these problems aren't with the doctors, psychiatrists, nurses, or other healthcare providers at the VA. They lie with the bureaucrats. If you look at the Office of the Inspector General reports, it's uh, people who are, um, you know, contractors trying to finagle deals or, um, you know, illegally and unethically using a veteran's information to collect funds. It's in my case in particular, um, at the Phoenix VA, it was the actual leadership that it's hard to um, work around. You're talking the CEO or the director, her associate director, the chief of staff and the chief nurse that were in on a scenario to um, make it appear that the Phoenix VA was getting patients in and seen in a very timely manner and getting the healthcare they needed. While in reality, there was a, a whole other list that was um, being set aside of patients that didn't get the care they need. At the time, VA bureaucrats' careers depended on meeting metrics. And of course, when those metrics were difficult to meet, they fudged them. Working as a veteran whose job it was to take care of other veterans, Paula Padine started keeping close tabs on this fraud. I, I will tell you that um, being a whistleblower wasn't something I was looking for to put on my resume. <laughs> it's, it's as veterans say, you don't find the Purple Heart, it finds you. You don't find the whistleblower, it finds you. And I happened to be in, a, in a, a position where I could help expose corruption that was happening. Um, being in the C-suite as a public relations you know, director or a public affairs officer, you see things, you hear things, you know some of the inner workings of the leadership team. For a few years, Padine and a team that she had assembled, including Dr. Sam Foote, sent letters to the Inspector General and to then-VA Secretary Eric Shinseki. And sure enough, Sam did his own research. He found out that um, patients who the management said were getting in to see him within 14 days were actually waiting six months, nine months, a year to get care. And 
He wrote three letters to the Office of the Inspector General, signed every one. The OIG sent teams out to investigate. The secretary sent teams out to get in to investigate. And Sam finally said, Paula, um, I can tell you that I'm going to have to retire and blow this whole thing wide open. Paula had media training from her time as a Navy journalist and her years working in PR for the VA. I set him up with interviews at the Arizona Republic with the editorial group and their investigative reporter. I um, put him in touch with members of House Veterans Affairs Committee on Oversight and Investigations. And um, I connected him with, you know, the congressional members and other reporters and um, you know, they they wanted to run the stories, but they couldn't because we're only one source. It would be a bit more time before the press could find a corroborating source. Then, one day during a congressional hearing... Based on what you know, are people, quote-unquote, cooking the books? Is that, in fact, a problem within the healthcare system? I'm not aware, and other than a number of isolated cases where there is evidence of that. Uh, but the fact that there is evidence in a couple of cases behooves us to go and take a thorough look. And that's when the Arizona Republic, CNN, and others were able to break the story because they had their second source. The latest crisis in the VA took off when CNN investigated the hospital in Phoenix, where 40 veterans died waiting for care, according to sources. Those same sources. Uh, the very next month, they got put on leave, and months later, they got fired. But I will say that I have to give a phenomenal amount of credit to Dr. Sam Foote, who, you know, he was a front man. But first, let's bring in the whistleblower himself, Dr. Sam Foote, to explain to us what led him to make that one call that led to countless headlines. I uh, started to see things going funny in uh, December of 2012. We had about 13,000 patients without primary care providers and over a year backlog. And then uh, as things progressed, they started to go to the secret waiting list. And I didn't think too much about that. Uh, you know, they game the numbers and play with that sort of stuff all the time. And you had personal experience with these patients that were dying, didn't you? I had, it, later I did, I had patients, I had two very near misses, one that would have waited 21 months, who'd waited 14 months uh, before he went to the emergency room after he couldn't get an appointment. Totally baseline not to get deep into this. We should close down the VA and just give everyone TRICARE. There's discussion in the veteran community about disbanding the VA entirely and just giving every veteran the same health insurance they had when they were in the service. Even after witnessing the worst of the VA, Paula disagrees. You know, it's like, do you throw the baby out with the bathwater? Um, I think VA would be benefited greatly by going back to its primary mission of serving the war wounded. There is a special camaraderie that our veterans with mental health challenges from serving in war get from each other. And you can't build that in the regular hospital system. There's a special camaraderie that our veterans who have lost limbs get from physical rehabilitation. You can't get that in the private sector. Essentially, over the past 40 years, the VA built itself into a primary care system that serves all veteran health needs, not just those directly related to military service. I think what happens is we're trying to be everything to everybody. And 
that makes it difficult. I think the VA has more money than what it know, knows what to do with. I don't think it's a funding issue. I think it's an organizational, um, you know, structure that really needs to be looked at and said, okay, here's the focus and here's what we need to do. Padeen favors letting the VA deal with war wounds, which is what it was designed for and then giving veterans TRICARE so they can have their primary care needs managed in the civilian sector, what that was designed for. We can't level the playing field. So what are the things that we're really, really, really good at and where can we focus our efforts so that we're the best in those and then maybe uh, community care or TRICARE out the rest. Regardless of how they get treatment, it can be really hard for veterans with disabilities to even acknowledge that those disabilities exist. For me, a bad ankle, asthma, and ringing in my ears can certainly make life more difficult. I need to sleep with a loud box fan, an ankle brace, and keep my inhaler on my nightstand. But at least I can walk, work, and live a relatively normal life. Veterans with disabilities, especially the vast majority who have invisible disabilities, occupy this weird liminal space. Society hears the words disabled veteran and gets a clear picture in their mind. That clear picture isn't very accurate though. I'll let Dustin Logan give the final thought. So in terms of disability, do you feel like a disabled veteran? <laughs> no. Why not? Because I have my legs, I have my arms, I have, I don't have scars, I don't have shrapnel scars, that you, you know what I mean? I have, my biggest problem was survivor's guilt. A lot of my issues came because everyone else was getting screwed up and I was somehow walking away. But then I didn't realize that I was getting like after effects of blasts or after effects of this or after effects of that or, you know, just how bad like your knees are messed up, your back is messed up, your neck is messed up. Um, and because I can, when you look at me, especially like with my job, you know, I dress relatively decent for work. I am just the epitome of health, quote unquote. You're put together. But ha heaven forbid I didn't have any legs. And I'm not taking nothing away from nothing. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that we do have a lot of people who are going through a whole lot who look fine. Here, Arizona is a production of the Division of Public Service at Rio Salado College, which includes Sun Sounds of Arizona, Spot 127, KBOC, and KJZZ. This podcast series is made possible by a grant from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust and support from listeners like you. Thank you. This episode was produced, written, directed, and hosted by Scott Bork. Linda Pastore is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>